God bless and greetings in the name of Jesus Christ. What we're going to look at today is, I am found of them that sought me not. Take your Bibles and turn to Isaiah chapter 65 and then verse 1. We read here, I am sought of them that ask not for me. I am found of them that sought me not. I said, behold me, behold me unto a nation that was not called by my name. In Genesis 24, 7, you read, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. What we have in verse 7 is the creation of man. First, the forming of his body from the dust and elements of the earth. Secondly, the breathing into his nostrils the breath of life. It was God then that made man as we know him, the Lord who made man's body and caused him to become a living soul. Thus man was not placed on the earth by chance, neither did he evolve from some primordial soup, so that men as we know them are the work of God's creation and not anything to do with evolutionary chance. Because man was first created by God, God does have power and authority over him. This is important to understand simply because if you do not believe yourself to be the work of God, then you will dismiss the claim that God has any rights over you. In short, men who do not think that they were created by a spiritual father will subsequently reject all heavenly correction presented to them from him. Belief also that God is man's creator, gives hope that God can save the soul when the body is placed in the grave. Likewise, only when you begin to move your heart to believing that God is your creator will there be any chance of you potentially believing that he can save you. Since God made man's soul, he then has sufficient power to save it if called upon. In Psalm 145, verse 18, we read, The Lord is nigh unto all them that call upon Him. And then it clarifies it. To all that call upon Him in truth. God's Word declares here that the Lord is nigh unto all them that call upon Him. It then specifies even clearer whom God is nigh unto. It is to those who call upon Him in truth. To call upon God in truth is to call upon Him in sincerity and genuineness of the heart. It is to truthfully approach God with proper motives and inward sincerity. A man, therefore, who does not call upon God in truth with genuine sincerity will find that God is far away from him. For those he is close to, are only those who are truthful in their approach of himself. Approaching God in singleness and purity is not an option spiritually. As the Lord cannot be deceived, nor will have the wool pulled over his eyes by any who are not sincere in their soul when they approach him. Hence a man must truthfully seek God to then wonderfully discover that God is as close as his very breath. For he who first breathed into the first Adam's body is still equally as close to every man today 
if men are sincere in discovering him. Barnes on this verse. To all that call upon him in truth, in sincerity, not hypocritically, worshiping him as the true God and with a sincere desire to obtain his favor. Compare the notes at John 4.24. We can have no hope that God will hear us unless we are sincere in our worship. He, God, sees the heart and he will act toward us as we are and not as we profess to be, end quote. To develop this truth even further, let us study Christ's words to the woman at the well. When Jesus revealed to her how the God who is only spirit must be worshiped properly. In John chapter four and in verse seven we read, there cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away unto the city to buy meat. Pool on this verse. It is uncertain whether this woman was a citizen of Samaria, which city is said to be at two miles distance from this place, or one of that country, which went by that name. For Samaria was the name of that region as well as of that city. She came not out of any design to meet with Christ there, but came to draw water. They having not pumps and wells so common as we have, were forced to travel for water for their necessary uses. Thus it often happeneth that we meet with divine mercy when we think not of it. God is found of those who seek him not nor inquire after him. Isaiah 65, one again. I am sought of them that ask not for me. I am found of them that sought me not. I said, behold me, behold me, unto a nation that was not called by my name, which lets us see how all our motions and actions are at the divine disposal and government. Rachel went not to the well to meet with the tidings of a husband, but to water her father's flock. But there she met Jacob, Genesis 29, 9, as it happened to Rebekah before, Genesis 24, 15, end quote. Every true Christian also confessing that the Lord found them and not they him. The Lord ordering situations in men's and women's lives, even if they merely think they are only going out on a simple errand to get water. John chapter four, verse nine, then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. The first truth that Jesus must do to help any receive the living water, which is the Spirit of God, is to first break people's prejudices. See if a man already thinks he knows God or God's Son, then there is little hope of him receiving proper truth about either. And every prejudice that a man has is his thinking that he knows. The main thing that will prevent people from being saved by God is their improper beliefs concerning him. Hence, wrong thoughts about the Lord must be broken and confessed as error. Before then, there will be ample room for the real truth of God to be taught. 1 Corinthians 8, 2. And if any man think that he knoweth anything, 
he knoweth nothing yet as he ought to know. See, many will fail to be saved by God simply because their human conceit prohibited any true knowledge of God to be taught to them. Matthew Henry on this verse. There is no proof of ignorance more common than conceit of knowledge. Much may be known when nothing is known to good purpose. And those who think they know anything and grow vain thereon are the least likely to make good use of their knowledge. Satan hurts some as much by tempting them to be proud of mental powers as others by alluring to sensuality. Knowledge which puffs up the possessor and renders him confident is as dangerous as self-righteous pride. Though what he knows may be right, without holy affections, all human knowledge is worthless, end quote. Verse 10 now. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. Verse 11. The woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou that living water? Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well, and drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle? Sinners, because of spiritual blindness, will only go in search for physical things, while completely unaware that much more valuable heavenly things are within their grasp. See, though the woman sought only water, Christ came to make known a much higher and greater object to be desired. Benson on this verse. The phrase living water, frequently signifying in the language of Judea, only springing water or running water, in opposition to that which stagnates. If you then have a religion that easily stagnates, then you also have yet to receive this living water which Christ here speaks of, Jeremiah 2.13. For my people, and God is talking to his people, have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. It is men then who themselves forsake God's living water with religions that can neither hold nor keep any of God's real life in them. Men who claim cisterns while at the same time forsaking God who is himself a fountain. Churches also and pastors, if they are dull, possess only broken cisterns, which hold no real truth of God in them. Tradition, therefore, even if it is Christian tradition, will soon go lifeless if God's Spirit is not providing for it life. And though a man may pastor a church, if he has not the power of the Holy Spirit energizing his faith, he will be both uninspired himself and uninspiring to others. Inspiration actually being in spirit action. Any religion thus without the Spirit of God will be as dead as the world around it. The woman's response, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, shows that men in their natural and carnal state think that physical power must do everything, when the truth is that if men will approach God in faith, then it will be God who changes their life. A natural man 
who therefore has not the spirit will be a self-dependent man because he lacks the understanding that there is a God who is more than willing to help him in his life if he will repent. Verse 13 now. Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Jesus contrasts the difference between earthly water that can only sustain for a short time natural life and spiritual water which can spring up to life everlasting. Barnes on this verse. The soul by nature is like such a desert or like a traveler wandering through a desert. It is thirsting for happiness and seeking it everywhere and it finds not. It looks in all directions and tries all objects but in vain. Nothing meets its desires. Though a sinner seeks for joy and wealth and pleasures, yet he is not satisfied. He still thirsts for more and seeks still for happiness in some enjoyment. To such a weary and unsatisfied sinner, the grace of Christ is as cold waters to a thirsty soul." End quote. In reference to the Spirit, Jesus states that they who receive it shall never thirst. Shall never thirst. He shall be satisfied with this and will have a sense of want, a sense, a distressing feeling that it is not adapted to him. He who drinks this will not wish to seek for happiness in other objects. Satisfied with the grace of Christ, he will not desire the pleasures and amusements of this world. And this will be forever in this world and the world to come. Whosoever drinketh of this, all who partake of the gospel, shall be forever satisfied with its pure and rich joys, shall be in him. The grace of Christ shall be in his heart, or the principles of religion shall abide with him or within him. A well of water, there shall be a constant supply, an unfailing fountain, or religion shall live constantly with him springing up. This is a beautiful image. It shall bubble or spring up like a fountain. It is not like a stagnant pool, not like a deep well, but an ever-living fountain that flows at all seasons of the year, in heat and cold, in all external circumstances of weather, whether foul or fair, wet or dry. So religion lives, and amid all changes of external circumstances, in heat and cold, hunger and thirst, prosperity and adversity, life, persecution, contempt, or death, it still lives on and refreshes and cheers the soul. Into everlasting life, it is not temporary like the supply of our natural wants. It is not changing in its nature. It is not like a natural fountain or spring of water to play a while and then die away as all natural springs will at the end of the world. It is eternal in its nature and supply and will continue to live on forever. We may learn here, first, that the Christian 
has a never-failing source of consolation adapted to all times and circumstances. Second, that true religion has its seat in the heart and that it should constantly live there. Third, that it sheds its blessings on a world of sin and is manifest by a continual life of piety, like a constant flowing spring. Fourth, that its end, true religion, is everlasting life. It will continue forever. And whosoever drinks of this shall never thirst, but his piety shall be in his heart a pure fountain, springing up to eternal joy." End quote. Verse 15 now. The woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water, that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. The woman's response was that if Jesus would give her this new kind of water, then she would never again have to come out to visit a well again. See, people will often look for physical advantages when presented with spiritual truth. Hence, men are generally more concerned with how spiritual truth can be an advantage to them physically or materially way before they understand where the true treasures of life are to be found. Reminding ourselves also, as Matthew Henry once stated, that spiritual and heavenly blessings are the best blessings. Verse 16 now. Jesus saith unto her, Go, call thy husband, and come hither. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband, for thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou hast is not thy husband, and thou saidest thou truly. People will seldom give those who are bringing truth to them much respect until they realize that God knows their hearts. Hence, because the woman was slow to receive spiritual truth, then Jesus reveals to her her sin. Sadly, God must do the same today. For if prophecy is not brought forth, which shows the true conditions of people's hearts, then people will never realize that God knows their true inner self. Hence, only when men are brought to know that God knows all in their life will they then be in a position to know that the Spirit of God is among them. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 24. But if all prophesy, and there can come in one that believeth not, or one unlearned, he is convinced of all, he is judged of all, and this is the reason why. And thus are the secrets of his heart made manifest. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is in you of a truth. Until then, men's secrets are made manifest to them, which only God can reveal. Then they generally will not report that God is working around them. True prophecy revealing to men that God knows them and that there is nothing they can do to hide themselves from God. Barnes on this verse. And thus are the secrets of his heart made manifest, made manifest to himself in a surprising and remarkable manner. He shall be led to see the real designs and motives of his heart. His conscience would be awakened. He would recall his former course of life. He would see that it was evil and the present state of his heart would be made known to himself. It is possible that he would suppose that the speaker was aiming directly at him. 
and revealing his feelings to others. For such an effect is often produced. The convicted sinner often supposes that the preacher particularly intends him and wonders that he has such an acquaintance with his feelings and his life and often supposes that he is designing to disclose his feelings to the congregation, end quote. The Samaritan woman, by Jesus revealing to her that he was aware of her past, begins to realize that she is having contact with someone much higher than herself. This man at the well, Jesus, is of a much higher quality than ever she imagined. John chapter 4, verse 19. The woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Though she could not perceive the truth relating to the Spirit, she does begin to perceive that Jesus is a prophet, teaching us that prophets, of which Jesus was certainly much more than this, are given by God not simply knowledge of future events, but also the spiritual knowledge of men's present hearts. Thus a great majority of New Testament prophecy will be brought forth from men of God concerning the hearts of those seeking God. Simply because not until God gets men's attention and respect, by showing them that He knows all of them, will men be in a position to properly fear God in order to believe. Hence, not until men come to know that God fully knows the secret things of themselves will they be able to be taught greater truths about God. Verse 20 now. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and this is the woman speaking, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. How often are men deceived to think that it is where they worship and not how they worship, which is required for true worship. That if they go to the right place, hence the right mountain, right church or right denomination, that all is right with God. No doubt, people who assume this are completely wrong. For true worship will be less about location and much more about what the condition is of the heart at that location. Where therefore a man attends church means little if there is not spirituality and sincerity in his entering into it. It is thus not simply the location that men worship at which should constitute true religion, but rather how men worship. Verse 21, Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when you shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Barnes on this verse, believe me. As she had professed to believe that he was a prophet, it was right to require her to put faith in what he was about to utter. It also shows the importance of what he was about to say, end quote. In truth, whom you believe that Jesus is will ultimately determine if you are ready to believe his words. Hence, if you do not believe Jesus to be the Son of God, you will not take his words as being both from and of God. How holy then you consider Jesus to be, ultimately determining if there is sufficient faith in him in order to receive the Holy Spirit. For none can have a small opinion of the Son of God and think that any part of heaven will be theirs. Verse 22 now. Ye worship, you know not what, Christ speaking. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. 
How many then today are like the Samaritans in 2 Kings? 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 26, we read now. Wherefore they spake to the king of Assyria, saying, The nations which thou hast removed and placed in the cities of Samaria know not the manner of the God of the land. Therefore he hath sent lions among them, and behold, they slay them, because they know not the manner of the God of the land. Verse 27 now. Then the king of Assyria commanded, saying, Carry thither one of the priests, whom he brought from thence, and let them go and dwell there, and let him teach them the manner of the God of the land. Then one of the priests, whom they had carried away from Samaria, came and dwelt in Bethel, and taught them how they should fear the Lord. Howbeit every nation made gods of their own, and put them in the houses of the high places, which the Samaritans had made. Every nation in their cities wherein they dwelt. And the men of Babylon made Succbaneth, and the men of Cuth made Nergal, and the men of Hamath made Ashima, and the Avites made Nibaz and Tartak, and the Sepharites burnt their children in fire to Adramalek and Anamalek, the gods of Seraphim. So they feared the Lord and made unto themselves, now listen to this, of the lowest of them, priests of the high places, which sacrificed for them in the houses of the high places. They feared the Lord and served their own gods after the manner of the nations whom they carried away from thence. Unto this day they do after the former manners. They fear not the Lord, neither do they after their statues or after their ordinances or after the law and commandment which the Lord commanded the children of Jacob, whom he named Israel. You will always notice a deluded religion when men who have not true ministries then are placed in positions of ministry. 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 31. And he made and houses of high places and made priests of the lowest of the people which were not of the sons of Levi. The church today is also in its sad state because it likewise practices the ways of Jeroboam. Having no respect for spiritual offices, a corrupt culture will let any man into them. What is also seen here is that men will often say they fear the Lord, but it is only a pretended fear, when in fact the worship of idols and the dismissing of God's commandments is their real condition. So that in the end, most professors of God, because they believe not God's word, nor hold to God's commandments, know nothing of the God they claim to worship. For them, speech is the depth of their worship. This, of course, is not enough if a man truly desires to sincerely approach God and be received by Him. As many will live their whole lives thinking they are worshiping God when in fact they know nothing truly of the God they profess and shall suffer mightily in their lives like the Samaritans because of it. Verse 23 now. But the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. Ellicott on this verse. But the hour cometh, better as in John 4, 21, but there cometh an hour. He adds to this thought, 
what he could not add to the previous one, and now is. Local worship was not yet giving way to spiritual, but a band of true worshipers was being gathered, and some were then following him. The true worshipers. Her distinction of place was of the accident, but the essence was the nature of the worship. What could any worship be to God who saw the impurity of the heart and the contradiction of thought and word? What could she know of the worship of which she speaks? Yes, and the temple at Jerusalem was a house of merchandise instead of one of prayer. What did priest and Levite, scribe and Pharisee, know of true worship? In spirit and in truth, the link between human nature and the divine is in the human spirit, which is the shrine of the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 6, 19. All true approach to God must therefore be in spirit. Place and time and words and postures and sounds and all things from without are important only insofar as they aid in abstraction from the sensible world and in elevation of the spirit within. The moment they distract, they hinder true worship. Ritual cannot be discussed without risk of spiritual loss." End quote. Jesus thus taught them that the true worship of God must include worshiping the Father in spirit and in truth. Again, the link between human nature and the divine is in the human spirit, which is the shrine of the Holy Spirit. All true approach to God must therefore be in spirit. Place and time and words and postures and sounds and all things from without are important only insofar as they aid in abstraction from the sensible world and in elevation of the spirit within. Thus it makes no difference where a man worships on the outside if the spirit within himself is not right with God on the inside. And this can only take place when our souls are in agreement with God's own spiritual nature. Verse 24 now. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Jesus now teaches the Samaritan woman a hidden and glorious truth, that God is a spirit. Since then God is spirit, he cannot be properly worshipped through either the flesh or human ordinances. Going to church then will mean nothing if the soul and or spirit part of man is not directly linked to and in communion with God. Sitting down in a pew, falling far short of spiritual worship if the heart and soul is not greatly involved in the process. Hence, only going through the motions will be, as far as God is concerned, an utter waste of good spiritual time. Because the real truth is, which Jesus teaches here, that if God is not worshipped both in spirit and in truth, then he is not properly being worshipped at all. Pool on this verse. God is not a corporal being, made up of blood and flesh and bones, having senses as bodies have, to be pleased with sensible things, but he is a spiritual being, the father of spirits, and requireth a spiritual service proportioned to his being, and therefore those that pay a religious homage to him must do it with their spirits, and according to the rule that he hath prescribed, 
in truth and reality. This is now the will of God. And though he required in the past of people under the law a more ritual, figurative service, yet that is to now cease. And therefore the woman of Samaria did not trouble herself, which was the truest worship, that at Mount Gerizim or Mount Zion, for both of them were suddenly to determine and a new more substantial spiritual worship was to succeed to the learning of the way and method of which she was more to attend and not to spend her thoughts about these things which were of no significance and tended only to minister questions of no use, end quote. It is only the spirit in a man that can properly worship God, teaching us that since God is spirit, only God's own nature can lead men to a proper worship of himself. All else is of the flesh, and as such will be rejected as merely human and vain worship. Matthew chapter 15 now. Then came Jesus to the scribes and Pharisees, which were of Jerusalem, saying, Why do thy disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they wash not their hands when they eat bread. But he answered and said unto them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God by your tradition? For God commanded, saying, Honor thy father and mother, and he that curseth father and mother, let him die the death. But ye say, Whosoever shall say to his father or mother, It is a gift, by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me, and honor not his father or mother, he shall be free. Thus have ye made the commandment of God of none effect by your tradition. Verse 7 now. Ye hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Therefore, since God is a spirit, if men desire to truly make contact with him, then it needs to be done God's way and not man's way. As all true worship of God must be inspired by the Spirit of God. Because in truth, this is the only way of yielding proper worship to God. Romans 14, 17. For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. Worry not then, dear Christian, so much as to what goes in your mouth, but instead concern yourself as to if righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost abides in your soul. Barnes on this verse. For the kingdom of God, here it means the uniqueness of the kingdom of God or of the church of Christ on earth, do not consist in observing the distinctions between meats and drinks. It was true by these things the Jews had been particularly characterized but the Christian church was to be distinguished in a different manner. Meat and drink. In observing distinctions between different kinds of food or making such observances a matter of conscience as the Jews did, Moses did not prescribe any particular drink or prohibit any, but the Nazarites abstained from wine and all kinds of strong liquors. And it is not improbable that the Jews had invented some distinctions on this subject which they judged to be of importance. Hence it is said in Colossians 2.16, Let no man judge you in meat or in drink. But righteousness. This word here means virtue 
integrity. A faithful discharge of all the duties which we owe to God or to our fellow man. It means that the Christian must so live as to be appropriately denominated a righteous man and not a man whose attention is absorbed by the mere ceremonies and outward forms of religion. And peace. This word in this place does not refer to the internal peace and happiness which the Christian has in his own mind but to peace or concord in opposition to contention among brethren. The tendency and design of the kingdom of God is to produce concord and love and to put an end to alienation and strife. Even though, therefore, there might be ground for the opinions which some cherished in regards to rights, yet it was of more importance to maintain peace than to obstinately to press those matters at the expense of strife and contention. That the tendency of the gospel is to promote peace and to induce people to lay aside all causes of contention and bitter strife is apparent from the following passages. A contentious, quarrelsome spirit, a disposition to magnify trifles, to make the shibboleth, a widely held belief of a distinctive group though often regarded as meaningless to others, a party, an occasion of alienation, and heart burning and discord to sow dissensions on account of unimportant points of doctrine or of discipline is full proof that there is no attachment to him who is the Prince of Peace. Such a disposition does infinite dishonor to the cause of religion and perhaps has done much more to retard its progress than all the other causes put together. Contentions commonly arise from some small matters in doctrine, in dress and ceremonies, and often the smaller the matter, the more fierce the controversy, until the spirit of religion disappears and desolation comes over the face of Zion. And joy. This refers, doubtless, to the personal happiness produced in the mind by the influence of the gospel in the Holy Ghost, produced by the Holy Spirit." End quote. Since God is spirit, it should be quite unthinkable that physical restrictions are enough to please Him. So also, since God is a spirit, He should only be sought from that part of our nature which was first made a living soul. For only when the inward part of a man seeks God can God be found by man. Matthew chapter 22, verse 36, a man asking Christ, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God, now listen to this, with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments, hang all the law and the prophets. Notice in Christ's commandment that it's man's inward being that must love God. No man therefore can be accepted by the Lord who does not love God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Verse 25 now, John. The woman said unto him, I know that the Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he is come, he will tell us all things. Jesus saith unto her, 
I that speak unto thee am he. This seems to be an aversion by the woman, for instead of contemplating about God and the Holy Spirit that Christ was speaking of, she shifts to a conversation about the Messiah. As if unwilling to hear Christ's words, she shifts the topic. Yet now Jesus pointedly tells her who he is. I that speak unto thee am he. The Lord therefore identifying himself as he whom God would use to send the long prophesied Spirit of God. The Lord Jesus informing the woman at the well that he was indeed the Messiah. Jesus knew this Samaritan woman's life because also God has appointed him the judge of all men's hearts. Romans chapter 2, verse 16. In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Nothing therefore shall be able to escape the notice of he who knows all of man. Barnes on this verse. I that speak unto thee am he. I am the Messiah. This was the first time that he openly professed it. He did not do it yet to the Jews, for it would have excited envy and opposition. But nothing could be apprehended in Samaria. And as the woman seemed reluctant to listen to him as a prophet and preferred her willingness to listen to the Messiah, he openly declared that he was the Christ, that by some means he might save her soul. From this we may learn, first, the great wisdom of the Lord Jesus in leading the thoughts along to the subject of practical personal religion. Two, his knowledge of the heart and of the life. He must be, therefore, divine. Three, he gave evidence here that he was the Messiah. This was the design of John in writing this gospel. He has therefore recorded this narrative, which was omitted by the other evangelists. Four, we see our duty. It is to seize on all occasions to lead sinners to the belief that Jesus is the Christ and to make use of all topics of conversation to teach them the nature of religion. There never was a model of so much wisdom in this as the Savior, and we shall be successful only as we diligently study his character. Five, we see the nature of religion. It does not consist merely in external forms. It is pure, spiritual, active, an ever-bubbling fountain. It is the worship of a pure and holy God where the heart is offered and where the desires of a humble soul are breathed out for salvation, end quote. And now Matthew Henry on this verse. The spirit or the soul of a man, as influenced by the Holy Ghost, must worship God and have communion with Him. Spiritual affections, as shown in fervent prayers, supplications, and thanksgivings, form the worship of an upright heart in which God delights and is glorified. The woman was disposed to leave the matter undecided till the coming of the Messiah. But Christ told her, I that speak to thee am he. She was an alien and a hostile Samaritan. Merely speaking to her was thought to disgrace our Lord Jesus. Yet to this woman did our Lord reveal himself more fully than as yet he had done to any of his disciples. No past sins can bar our acceptance with him. If we humble ourselves before him, 
believing in him as the Christ, the Savior of the world, end quote. See, though this Samaritan woman did not initially know it, he who stood before her and told her things about herself that no other man ever could, could was also he who would, after his dying for sins, send the very spirit he spoke of. Luke chapter 4, verse 49. And behold, Christ speaking, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tear ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. It would thus be Christ who would in appropriate time send the long prophesied Spirit of God, the Son of God Himself, giving men the living water, which is the Spirit of God, sent from heaven, which also will be necessary for their salvation. Amen.